Good morning, and welcome to our August 8th, 2023 Community Policing Podcast. Today, I'm honored to have uh, retired Lieutenant Jim Metzen from the Farmington Hills Fire Department. Uh, he just retired two Fridays ago. Um, Jim is well-known in, in the law enforcement and fire community, uh, especially around Oakland County, uh, for his involvement, one, in the fire service, but for, the, for our activist assailant conference that he puts on every year. Um, he's kind of been the instrumental in in studying and analyzing active shooter incidents across this country um or, oh, sorry across the globe really um and made contacts and um that really brings back information to our local law enforcement partners especially here in oakland county because that's where he's from um so that we can learn and be better responsive to our community uh, across oakland county so jim i appreciate you coming today uh your schedule is open now, so I appreciate you being here. Well, Chief, thank you very much uh, to you and uh, the township for the opportunity. Yeah, we're, we're excited to have you. And uh, uh, Carrie and I, our cable studio director, have been you know, planning people. And one of the first ones after the active assailant conference that we just had in June of this year, she said, we got to get Jim in here um, because of the work that you put into it. Um, it's, it's a thankless job, kind of, but you don't do it selfishly. You do it. You do it selfishly for our, our profession. Um, and when I say profession, the fire, EMS, um, and police is what we think of. But just prior to this, we talked about how important this stuff is for just the general population, business owners, and things of that nature. Well, I appreciate those kind remarks, and and uh, thanks for paying attention. Paying attention to a topic that uh, we wish we didn't have to pay attention to, but unfortunately, we do. Yeah, it's reality. And and prior to, you know. 2021, 22, this wasn't in our backyard, um, but it is now, twice. Um, and we don't want to dwell on those incidents all the time, but um, we learn basically from these conferences that you've had now for this, this was our sixth one this year, um, that here in Oakland County, we do prepare right. And we do know that when that alarm rings, when that call comes in, I think we proved as a collaborative response group from both police, fire, that we're, we're prepared in this county. Absolutely. You and I often talk about how uh, Oakland County is the second most populous county in the state of Michigan with approximately 1.3 million residents, yet we don't have a single community in our county with greater than 87,000 residents, which means when a critical incident occurs, we're going to need our neighbors and our neighbors are going to need us. Yeah, and so we talk about OAKTAC a little bit when we do that, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. But let's find out about who you are a little bit and your career path. Um, I, I mentioned you retired just not recently about a, out of Farmington Hills Fire Department, but how long were you there, What made, what and what got you into the active assailant you know, conference? Well, first and foremost, I'm the father of a couple of Sparties. Uh, my son lives and works in the Lansing area, and my daughter uh, lives and works in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And uh, as you said, I just retired from the city of Farmington Hills after 29 years. Uh, my last assignment with the fire department was uh, supervising the training division. And uh, many years ago, I served as a special operations corpsman within the United States Navy and uh, left the Navy in 1994, moved here to Michigan, found out what a, what a basement was, what the chicken dance was, what the Coney dog was, because I didn't know any of those things. And uh, just continued my involvement in uh, critical incident response and, uh, and tactical medicine, uh, but in the law enforcement community instead of the uh, public safety community, or instead of the military community. Yeah. Um, 
so this year was the sixth annual Active Assailant Conference, um, but you were one of the original, you were the original person that kind of created this idea. Let's talk a little bit how it started, um, and then a little bit about the attendance and, and has it, and how it's grown over the last few years to be this really a national event for us and worldwide event for some of the, the speakers that come. Absolutely. Well, I served as the founder and executive director of the World's Professional Association for medics and physicians that are integrated into law enforcement SWAT teams. And I did that for many years and put on a number of international conferences. So I had some experience uh, with conference organization. And then back in 2015, conceptualized uh, what has now become the annual North American Active Assailant Conference that we hold here in Oakland County. And it really has grown throughout the years. And what makes the conference so unique is there's no shortage of professional conferences for law enforcement officers that feature law enforcement debriefs or case studies of critical incidents that have occurred. And the same thing can be said uh, in the fire and EMS arenas. But in our in our with our conference, we blend both audiences. So approximately half of our attendees are law enforcement officers and the others are fire and EMS and emergency management and people from other disciplines. So to bring all of those stakeholders together to hear the same messages at the same time, I think has certainly improved uh, not only our preparedness here within Oakland County in the state of Michigan, but we have attendees coming in from all over the world and they've indicated that it's helped them greatly as well. Yeah. and I. I think there's some maybe misbeliefs or just unknowns when we talk about law enforcement and, and or first responders, let's say, and the, the importance of those after action reports or, or debriefs that we can share amongst each other, being humble and having some humility and saying, we did some things really good, but there are some areas where we really need to improve. Um, but that happens on a regular basis um, with our in our in both of our professions. And I don't think people realize how much we really Monday morning quarterback ourselves, I guess we'll say. Yeah, and these, these agencies that come in to talk about uh, the tragic experiences that they went through, they're very generous with their time. They're very forthcoming with the information that they share. And like you said, sometimes, and they're very, they're very quick to discuss not only things that they did well, but things that they struggled with over the course of that day or night should agencies in Oakland County, like you said, we've already experienced or, or elsewhere, uh, face similar circumstances, maybe they can benefit from those lessons learned, and that overall response uh, goes a little bit more efficiently as a result. Yeah, and you mentioned at the beginning, an incident can overrun a city, a township, a village, really quickly. Just because we have 100, you know, some of our larger agencies in Oklahoma have over 100 officers, there's not 100 officers on duty at that time. Um, and we found with some of the incidents around here, well, let's, let's talk MSU, we were able to send on the EMS side a strike force is what I believe they referred to it as to the Oakway systems of five ambulance companies to MSU to assist in whatever capacity was needed, right? Yeah, you know, and here in Oakland County, we're fortunate. I, I don't know if I would classify us as being resource rich, but we certainly do have more resources than the average county throughout the state of Michigan. And I think those other counties know that they can lean on us uh, for assistance when they're experiencing a, a major event. And they've communicated uh, to us that we can lean on them in, in the same way. Yeah, and there's still emergencies going on outside whatever that critical incident could be. Um, and not only that, but it's not only when we think of critical incidents. I think we we, we automatically go right to schools, right? We we go to that. But we are the home of 
probably one of the largest festivals when we come in two weeks for the Dream Cruise. Um, at one at any given time, and some of the last and prior things we we, you know, we went Austin, Texas here this year, who have a, a major downtown, who have events all the time, mm-hmm. and things happen. You know, Dayton, Ohio, we learned from um, in those incidents. So we're not only talking about someone going into an office bu- you know, a building or a school and and having some act of violence. We're talking any type of event. Well, to, to to put this in in Oakland County specific terms, or make it that much more relatable to Oakland County, uh, what happened on April twentieth, nineteen ninety nine, in Columbine High School, really resulted in these events being coined as school shootings, like you said. But it, there were certain there were certainly school shootings before that. There was mass violence before that, and many people may remember that uh, before these were called school shootings, they were called going postal when someone would enter a certain location or venue and cause harm to a great many people. And here in Oakland County with the Royal Oak Post Office, we many years ago experienced that. And one of our concerns right now is that uh, there was emphasis on post, uh, post offices many years ago, and then to this day, schools. And now we're very concerned about uh, open air venues and special events. And that's why people in positions like yours are doing your diligence that just that much more to protect your residents in those types of venues. Yeah, and it's it, it's challenging, right? We, I mean, there's just, you know, obviously the Vegas was probably one of the, I, I believe probably the largest um, mass casualty incident in an open air area um, that I can think of that I in my time as a law enforcement officer. Um, so yes, this was only my second conference that I've attended. Um, but let's add to the conference a little bit because you said other disciplines. I think it's important to talk about the days that, that you know, the main conference is the, is the Thursday and Friday where, where the meat of the, of the conference is. But the Wednesday before, um, first, we got to give Woodside Bible you know, if anybody watches from Woodside Bible the Church, they are a great partner for you um, and a great supporter of the law enforcement first responder community to, to even host it. Absolutely. It's, it's a tremendous, uh, the Woodside Bible Church campus in Troy is a just an indescribably tremendous venue. Uh, their staff does a phenomenal job supporting us. And because our conference, our general conference is really structured around uh, being uh not featuring breakouts. You said we have the breakouts on Wednesday, but on Thursday, Friday, we bring all the stakeholders together. And uh, the law enforcement officers are particularly intrigued hearing the fire and EMS messages because that's new to them. And the fire EMS folks are hearing the law enforcement messages and lessons learned. But we want everyone to understand each other's role during these uh, during these incidents, yeah, and it's those those breakout sessions on the on the days before. I actually sat through the the pub the PSAP the, the nine one one dispatch center, so as most people are aware of it, um, and to recognize how overwhelmed a center can become, where you know you obviously have the incidents going on, but you also have concerned parents, rightfully, or we will say parents, because those are the ones we debriefed this year, calling in wondering what is going on and wanting answers from the responders, are my kids okay? Or am I, I, you know, but to be able to include an elected official portion, uh, schools officials portion, only increases that partnership and the rec and recognizing that we, that we can't do this alone as a first responder community. 
Absolutely. So we bring in their peers. So we, we always have an appointed and an elected official breakout on Wednesday. It's a full day breakout. And we bring in appointed and elected officials who have experienced these tragedies firsthand to share those lessons learned with the attendees. So then those attendees can go back to their communities, evaluate their level of preparedness, and maybe make some uh, enhancements or improvements to what they've already done. Yeah. Um for this year, what, I mean, I know what feedback I gave you from the conference, but what, what's, what was the overall impression that you got? Well, we've, uh, I, I talked to my peers around the country, other conference organizers, and, and uh, some of them have attended our conference, and uh, they, they give it high marks. And actually, in the six years of, of doing this, we've never had even a single negative evaluation. And it's a very emotional conference because we're talking about mass violence over the course of three days, and we're cognizant of how emotional that conference is because we bring in responders, we bring in survivors uh, to tell their stories. So we actually have, uh, we staff the conference with mental health uh, providers because everyone has their personal and professional life experiences and we recognize that there's the potential that people could be emotionally triggered. So we have a mechanism in place to support them if and when that happens. Yeah, and I can tell you that, you know, it, it is an emotional week, um, you know, what, Looking around the audience, which is first responders who are dealing with these things, um, but also when our elected officials are there, kind of gives the idea of what's needed in our field today. And it's so important for for them to understand that they're welcome um, because they are our supporters, right? They are the decision, some of the decision makers, our governing boards, and how important that is. Um, I'd heard nothing negative as well, um, and but I, again, I just want to touch on. We had people from, I believe, it was Paris this year, mm -hmm. um, presenting on things that are going over on overseas and in other countries that could affect us here, or vice yes. versa. So th that's an important thing. Um, I think we touched on how is this event important to police and fire culture today. Um, but I know we, as an agency in Bloomfield Township. Um, send the majority of our reality-based instructors um, and some of the newer officers on our agency, along as, as, as well as some executive staff, um, so that we can take those lessons learned and do it. The difference, I think, that where, where you've really pushed, and I give you a lot of credit, is there's always the friendly banter between police and fire. We'll always have the red versus blue, right? But when it comes, we had, there was always a belief we had different missions on these scenes, and yeah, we still do have different missions. You know, the, initially, if there's an active assailant in a building or somewhere, law enforcement's priority is let's neutralize a subject, or, or and so we can get the fire department in here and, and triage. But that's changed now. There may be an active assailant on you know a west side of a building that's rather large, but fire is being escorted in to start extracting or treating patients now, which is a newer, I, I don't know, it's newer. I, I mean, let's be real. In the, in the law enforcement and fire world, those worlds are meeting together. It's not normal for a fireman to be putting on a tactical vest, a ballistic helmet, and a whole bunch of gear to go save lives. While there could be a hot zone another, you know, three hallways away. Mm -hmm. Well, let me just, uh, Chief, let me just take a moment of personal priv privilege to say that uh, 
uh, Bloomfield Township does an extraordinary job, including its police and fire departments. You're very progressive agencies and, and staying on top of the most contemporary strategies and tactics out there. So uh, the residents of Bloomfield Township have a lot to be proud of with their, with their public safety stakeholders. And really what we're looking for is for many years, like you said, it was a linear response because ultimately our goals are to stop the killing and stop the dying. So law enforcement would go in and try to accomplish the first half of that mission. And only after they had done that would fire and EMS go in to complete the second half of that mission. Now, we're not talking about hazarding or risking fire EMS unnecessarily. But over the years, they have taken on more risk appetite because they've learned that they, could, they can enter those environments with, law, with the protection of law enforcement sooner to start providing some outstanding emergency medical care to anyone in need. So we've gone from really a linear strategy to more of a simultaneous strategy. Yeah. Let's, let's touch on something real quick that I, you know, I don't want to, I just want to kind of make it a simpler step because some people may not understand the difference between what a paramedic engine or paramedic truck is versus just basic EMTs. The majority of our agencies around here now have paramedics on staff which they can administer medicine. They're administering medical care, you know, outside of just basic, you know, extraction, get them to the hospital. They're able to provide life-saving measures, stop the bleed, right there. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. In many instances, they're bringing the emergency department right to what we call the point of injury, that specific location where that person is hurt. During these critical incidents, oftentimes the level of care itself may be basic life support instead of advanced life support, but the critical thinking that firefighter paramedics possess is essential to a lot of the decision-making that, that needs to be done. So in some instances, they're uh, applying their paramedic skills, but in all instances, they're applying their knowledge and experience to that decision-making. And it's not an easy program to get a paramedic license. No, no it's, it's very challenging. It's very challenging. And we're fortunate here in Bloomfield Township, um, and I, again, I don't know the Farmington Hills way, but Bloomfield Township, we require all, at some point, everybody's a medic. Yes. Um, and that's a big deal. I, there was a time where we had the ability to only hire paramedics. Um, we're back to, you know, uh, um, working in supplying that training for our, our, our um, fire department personnel. And, so. and as a longtime EMS coordinator and training officer, I can say that two paramedics are generally better than one. Three paramedics are generally better than two. The more firefighter paramedics you have on a scene, the more things can occur simultaneously and the faster that, uh, that person in need can get to definitive care, such as, uh, the hospitals in either uh, Royal Oak or Pontiac. Yeah. And just a small thing that I noticed in some of these conferences, you know, three, again, I didn't go to all of them, but I've heard the debriefs in some of them is you look at Aurora, Colorado or things like that, where prior to that, you know, um, blending of the, of the law enforcement response and medic response, I didn't hear anyone this year complaining that the police cars all blocked the entrances for the police and fire because, or the fire trucks and the medics, right? Because it brings such an influx of police cars that in some of these places, they blocked off entrances and the egress and, uh, you know, ingress and egress of the medics um, trying to get to the scene to, to help out as well, which forced officers to be transported because we were the only cars near there. And it just shows, even though it's so minor in the grand scene, you know, to just the, the general person, we didn't, I didn't hear that this year that it, there, there's, 
that training, we come back to We're getting better. We're getting better. We're listening that says, listen, we know we got to park on the grass. We can't block the road. You know, and those little things can save somebody's life. And I'm glad you brought that up, Chief, because we've had some success conveying that message to local law enforcement and fire and EMS, and it's paying dividends. But now we want to convey that same message to the community at large. And that is, if you have loved ones at that venue, at the time that critical incident is occurring, you have to resist every fiber within you to drive there yourself because you might be complicating matters for emergency responders when you do. So what we say is tune into that law enforcement agency's social media or uh, turn on the TV and, and look at the local media coverage and wait for that messaging. Because if we have a thousand uh, members of blended families driving to that school or other venue, it's going to make our job much more challenging. Yeah. And that kind of takes us into our next thing about the media coverage. And I, I think there's a stat out there, maybe you know it, but I, at some point I thought I heard there was a stat like for every person involved or, or, or witness or victim inside of a building. And I'm talking, I could refer to a victim that's just a witness who's been traumatized. Um, it brings like one or two, two, maybe two or more people per person when, at a school. You're talking about a thousand students. You could get 2,000 parents yes. you know, coming from work, coming from home, that only delays our, our response and the saving of lives. Um, we talk about what the media role plays, but let's talk, let's add to that first that part of these incidents now, public information officers go right to those scenes. They're right at the command post. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, as soon as an incident happens, we're, we're working diligently to get some type of information, whether it's brief, but at least you're going to know what the what's going on and what the next steps for you as a loved one or, or, or guardian of these, of these individuals. We do that pretty immediate, and we talk about it frequently. Absolutely. Well, the, the media, they're absolutely stakeholders in this process as well, too. And we understand that their mission is to report the news and keep the community informed. So so we're trying to share that information with them in as timely a manner as we can. But we're going to lean on them for that public messaging piece where we know there's going to be many loved ones out there in the community that uh, want to go to the scene. We're discouraging that, but they want to reconnect with their family members or their friends, so they're waiting for us uh, through the media to announce the family reunification area. Yep. And that's the place where we want you to go to, uh, to reunite with your loved ones. But in return, what we ask of the media is to not contribute to the notoriety of these offenders, as was just once again demonstrated with the offender uh, from Oxford High School he indicated that he wanted more than his 15 minutes of fame. I mean, he wanted to become infamous. And unfortunately, the well, the media can choose whether or not to play a role in contributing to that fame. Right. And that was one of the themes of this year at the conference that I really noticed. Um, and it was actually spoken to us through some of our communications uh, personnel that were there was they're going to give the name at least once. But from then on out, Let's be done. They don't. We, we don't need to give them um, the time or energy. We need to focus on the families and the victims in the community to to provide what they need. This is a long process, and I don't know if a community ever heals. Right? You you move on. You share your experiences so that another community can learn from what we did. And um, I credit our our county, and I think for what they did for the 
for the Oxford community afterwards is great. But again, last week we just saw for three days, four days, uh, the majority of the victims and every single person in that community and the communities surrounding, because I, I, we all come together in Oakland County when something happens. Um, and it's it's really... They should, it should, we should be focused on other other aspects, not the person who did it. Well, the FBI and the Secret Service have clearly clearly established, and they have supporting data, that one of the largest contributing factors to this mass violence is that seeking of notoriety. So it's not just the opinion of, of survivors. Uh, there's some data to support that as well. And uh, one of the things that we're seeing statistically is because the many of these offenders are seeking that notoriety they're choosing to survive the incident whereas many years ago they may choose to die by their own hand now they are they are giving themselves up so they can have their day in court and they can live out their life sentence and what many people don't realize is that the the oxford offender receives fan mail on a regular basis if he were a few years older, he would receive marriage proposals. There's a, there's a subculture out there that worships and emulates some of these mass, uh, uh, these mass killers, mass murderers. So by contributing to their fame and uh, them having their day in court and continuing to traumatize that affected community on a daily basis, as we've seen recently with, with Oxford, uh, just add salt to the wound yeah um you know the family um some of the family members of victims in columbine um and obviously they come to the conference every year and present an award or they try to mm -hmm. um this year i think we had the daughter of of the coach I, i'm yes. sorry i don't remember their name uh, dave sanders dave, okay he was the only faculty member to lose his life in yeah. high school um and you i mean you've gotten to know them and kind of become uh, friends of that family and how has the sh the response to to these incidents evolved since Columbine? Well, I think, like you said, the after action reports. There are many lessons learned, and I think there are many law enforcement agencies and fire departments out there that are doing their diligence by reviewing those after action reports and learning those lessons. Uh, I'd like to think that our conferences play a role in that as well. So we don't have our heads in the sand. We're paying attention to current events. Uh, we're looking at what strategies and tactics work, uh, which which are more effective than others. We realize that each and every one of these incidents are different in their own way, but there are some common common denominators that we, we pay very close attention to to make our our response, our emergency response, more efficient and more expeditious. Yeah, uh, and the responsiveness to the communities is, in my, I mean, just in my again, I don't have. I've been in the job 23 years, um, been around law enforcement a little longer than that, but um, the mindset has changed. Um, there, there's no standoff. There's no waiting outside for a, a special weapons and tactics team to arrive on the scene. We teach, especially here in Oakland County, um, solo active shooter response. Yes. Solo response. If I'm the first one to that, and it doesn't matter who you are. If the chief of police or the, as a sheriff I've heard say before, if he's driving by the building mm -hmm. and it's going on, He's going in. 
Absolutely. The expectation on every law enforcement officer, not only in Oakland County or the state of Michigan, but the entire country and beyond, is to go in there and stop the violence as soon as possible. And if they have to bypass 20 victims to get to that threat and stop it, that's the expectation of the initial arriving law enforcement officers. And then the next waves of law enforcement officers and, and firefighters can go in there and, and stop the dying. They can start taking care of victims. But with, with that being said, Chief, we have some expectations that we place on the general public as well, too. We want them to have heightened situational awareness, to be able to see something, say something, uh, stop the bleed training that many people have undergone in recent years. Because at the end of the day, in Bloomfield Township, you have outstanding response times, as we do in Farmington Hills and many other communities throughout the county. But for the first two to four to six minutes, the people that are caught up in, the, in that uh, incident own that incident. All the responsibility falls on them to survive that two, four, or six minutes until we can get there. And there are some things that they can do to improve their chances. Yeah, and our community is learning, and then there's some videos that have been released this week. We will be hosting a um, critical incident training at, at, the, at our high school. Um, and, our, and our school district approached us and asked us if we'd partner with them in that manner. And... There's some apprehension from some of the teachers, and I, and I understand why you would not want to be you, – you didn't become a teacher to train in, in an incident of this. But one thing that stood out this year in one of the debriefs – and I, I don't want to name some of these agencies, but you know, one of them, the teachers, I think, told the kids, pretend you're sleeping. Because there was – and I think they admitted they had no training or exposure – to these incidents, so they didn't really. You, 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 what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is, we fall back on our, our training. Yes. And if you're exposed to it, it, something could trigger in that fight or flight that you're gonna. And, t and t listen, teachers are parents of these kids every day, all day long. I, I know. Obviously, I have, a, I have a spouse in there, but they, teachers, look at these students as their own children, um, and we've seen that across this country when these. Um, ridiculous, you know, these heinous activities occur, the teachers are heroes. They're the first. Absolutely. They are the first responders. And I, I say teachers because, again, we're, t we're, we're talking schools a little bit there, um, and that seems to be the, the, the heightened energy on it. But the exposure for them, in even the apprehension, we understand, but we also want them to feel, I don't say comfortable, that's the wrong word, confident that in the event something happens, they have the right tools and memory to kick in? Well, the freeze response is a very common uh, neurological response. And we want people, however they can, to overcome that freeze response and take action. So many people have heard the term uh, run, hide, fight uh, for many years. And we've kind of evolved that a little bit more into avoid, deny, defend, which really imparts the importance of taking action on the part of the people that are present at the time. Plan A is to try and avoid that violence however you can. Plan B, if you can't uh, do plan A, plan B is to deny them entry into your environment, such as locking a door or if there's a door securing device available, deploying that. And plan C is the worst case scenario is if A and B are not possible or have failed, then we expect people to defend themselves in any manner that they can. Yep. And we've seen it how successful it is while while there's tragic outcomes the success of saving lives 
out uh, is undeniable in those incidents. It's, I mean, we we learn that when when people do defend. They save lives. Absolutely. And, and people are, are always looking for the, the secret sauce or the magic formula. And it's really early recognition more than anything else. But we now all live in a society where our faces are buried in a device of some kind uh, a good part of the day. And uh, someone in your position talks about distracted driving all the time. Well, our society has distracted living. People that are walking across the street looking at their device or standing in a public place and looking at their device, and that gives them less time to recognize that something bad is happening. But the more time they have to recognize it, the more time they have to take action and potentially survive. And, and we've seen recent cases out of surrounding jurisdictions where people have intervened in, in yes. incidents, just you know, assaults in parking lots, um, and saved lives. I yes. mean, it saved lives. Um, Let's talk a little bit before we move on, and we, we're going to have to wrap up soon, but we talk about how we're different in Oakland County. You started that off. Uh, you're a board member of OAKTAC. Um, I've talked about OAKTAC in the past. It's our Oakland County um, Tactical Consortium um, where we train, we respond, and we're changing. We're adding that recovery piece, um, hopefully soon with the approval of the chiefs, um, to these incidents. But I think it's important for our residents of Oakland County and Bloomfield Township to know we all train very similar tactics, um, and the response and partnerships we have through OPTAC is really unique, and you see it more than I would with your traveling across this country. Well, in, in Oakland County, again, we have approximately 1.3 million residents. We have 62 communities, and on the average day, those 62 communities can be autonomous and uh, and be in control of their destiny. There are some times where they need county government, there are some times where they need state or federal government, and it's the same with these types of incidents as well. So fortunately, most, most of the time we're 62 different communities, but when we, when we need to come together in, in a public safety context, bring multiple police and fire departments together uh, in something, what we would call a metropolitan response is if we were a large city like the city of Detroit, OAKTAC enables us to do that because, like you said, all emergency responders have been trained in the same manner. So you could have a West Bloomfield, Bloomfield Township, and Birmingham, three, the three officers come together, an Oakland County Sheriff's deputy, and, and coming together on a crisis like that, and they know exactly what to expect of each other. And the response is going to be more seamless and more effective. And you come from the fire service where they have the mutual aid box alarm system, but you mentioned even the city of Detroit, who I believe just has to be a kind of a partner with our Oakland County agencies. Yes. Because they recognize the need. They have, we have the NFL draft coming up soon. Their chief spoke at your conference for us, and, and he expressed this concern. Like, I, I may have to rely on you, um, partners in Oakland County. So there is, it doesn't always mean there's a county line. There's some different hurdles we have to jump when you go cross county, but the recognition from every agency, I think, across this country now, especially with the recruiting and hiring and sh manpower shortages, that we have to rely on each other. And if we can do it in a consistent manner, as we do in Oakland County, we are, I hate to say, I mean, I, you, you hate to have to say we're prepared, but we're prepared um, in the event something happens. And, um, you know, we had our false alarm a few years ago at our high school, um, and it was our firemen and paramedics, it was, it was second nature to them to get into their gear in the event that there was an active incident in our in our schools, um, they were in their tack gear, ready to go with with triage bags, um, ready to go. So, I think that's important, and, and I appreciate you doing that. I guess my last question is, um, what do we as a public safety first responders need today 
uh, to support what, what the work that we do? Well, I would say that uh, that members of the community throughout the country, I think, have uh, an unrealistic expectation, and it's not their fault, but I think they believe that public safety communicates more uh, regionally than they actually do. Because the norm, I mean, some regions have great collaboration and communication, others do not. I might be a little bit biased, but I think uh, the only place in the United States that rivals the public safety collaboration and communication that we have here in Oakland County might be Northern Virginia. So it's really, at the end of the day, it's all about relationships. Uh, we have, I think, the best sheriff in the country. We've got great working relationships with uh, the state police and our federal partners. We're communicating on a regular basis. We're training together. And I think that uh, enables responses to be more effective and more successful. What we ask of the community is uh, here in Oakland, in Oakland County, and I know in, here in Bloomfield Township, you enjoy uh, the support of your residents. And we would just ask them to keep supporting law enforcement with uh, when someone in your position or, or the fire chief says we need some enhancements with staffing, we need some enhancements with uh, equipment. Because we talked about the appointed and elected official, the appointed and elected officials uh, seminar that we have every year within our conference, and oftentimes we'll have a police chief and a fire chief and maybe a city manager or a township supervisor sitting next to each other. And at the end of the day, they've all gotten an eyeful and an earful, and that township supervisor or city manager or mayor turns to their public safety executives and asks them, "Do we have what we need?" Is there anything more that we need to facilitate? And the police chief or the fire chief might say, we're in good shape, but to be in better shape, we really could use uh, another few employees or this vital piece of equipment or, or uh, some funding or whatever the case may be. And if the community could continue to step up and support that, uh, that that helps us do our jobs. Right, and, and, and we are very fortunate to where we worked that the communities are yes beyond supportive and, and are and we do have a great collaboration again you we talk about the the fire chiefs the oakway the oak tac um we collaborate a lot amongst each other you and i talk we're on dis different departments different disciplines but you're here today to support us um and, and talk about it with our communities but Hopefully other people are tuning into these uh, podcasts and can see that collaboration because we talk about it frequently. Is we have to get this information out so that the information. My last question with, or, or guess response would be, is there anything private businesses or residents can do if they want to support the Active Sustainable Conference? Is there any... Well, so, uh, so school personnel, school executives, school security personnel are certainly welcome to attend the conference, uh, as are those that work in the corporate security sector as well, too. The, our conference is really about being inclusive and not exclusive. We do have some attendance uh, restrictions, obviously, because of the sensitivity of the information that's being uh, discussed. But at the same time, we want our corporate security partners and our school security partners uh, and their leadership to hear those messages. And uh, it sounds like you've got a great relationship with your school district and you've got that upcoming exercise. And uh, we would encourage the same thing with some of your larger corporate citizens as well. Um, I know you have great relationships with them, but uh, for them to approach someone in your position and say, what can we do to be a better corporate citizen and to better safeguard 
our employees right. and our customers. I'm sure you're, you and your staff have a lot of good information for that. Yeah, and we have, uh, I mentioned it last time, but our community relations officer is trained in the you know, surveys of the buildings and um, safety surveys and even residential surveys at, at no cost. Um, so our residents can reach out to us um, and we would, we would you know, allow them to help out other areas as well. Yeah, and, and on that note, I will say that no venue, small or large, no community, small or large, is immune from these tragedies. So it really, it, it, it's incumbent upon us to prepare as, as best we can. We're not saying it should dominate our lives or we should live our lives in fear, but uh, we just want to do our diligence to yeah. prepare as best we can. Situational awareness. Yes. So, Jim, I want to thank you for coming on today. Well, Chief, we, thanks, we, for, we could, thanks for having we, me. We, you and I could talk this all day and for several hours, I'm sure. But uh, we, I appreciate you taking your time. You're a you know, retiree now. I, I, I knew your schedule would be open just a little I'm a retiree bit on a fixed income. I've learned, yeah, this, yeah. I've learned to say that. Yeah. So, again, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Well, thanks so, for the opportunity. Thanks. We will be right back. When I was about five years old, I went to a fair with my family and I saw an officer, his ex-canine officer, and I was like, oh, I want to do that when I grow up. I actually did an interview at the academy and after that I set up a ride-along and the ride-along was great. After I completed my bachelor's degree, I thought to myself, there's something more I want to do. And with law enforcement, I've always had an interest in law enforcement. I just never acted on it until I got my bachelor's degree. I had a personal experience when I was a nanny and the kid I nannied for got killed by a drunk boater, and that's part of the reason I became a police officer. I left the Marine Corps in 2017, and I used my degree working in marketing for four years. I had been unhappy in the job I was previously in, and I put myself through the police academy. It's not an overly busy department. You know, we do have our handful of, of big crimes. You're not going to be running from major crime to major crime to major crime. Your workday is actually what you make it. So above the calls that you get dispatched, there's plenty of time to go out there and be a proactive police officer and kind of dabble a little bit in what is your specific interest in police work and seek out the crime. Well, the community itself is, is very supportive of our police department, and we are very fortunate to have that here. It's a good size department but it's not so big where you get lost. As far as the camaraderie goes within the department, it's great. Roll call is probably one of the funnest times on shift. Getting to go out to these different calls and, and hanging with these guys or girls is a, is a bonus. I think that's the biggest thing, is the respect and friendliness. We have a lot of amenities here. We can work out on duty um, during our breaks for lunch. There's so much more. I just, I really like working here. From the time of my ride-along at the start of the application process till the final interview to the job offering, it, it's been nothing but a great experience. Wouldn't want to be anywhere else. It's the people here, people I work with every night. It's a great place to be and couldn't have made a better choice. I know for me, it's an honor to work here. This is a department that I knew as soon as I heard about them, this is where I wanted to work and where I wanted to continue and hopefully work my whole career here. Welcome back to our Community Policing Podcast. Uh, just a few things in our crime report for the last couple weeks as uh, we missed a podcast last week uh, due to some scheduling conflicts. However, over the last few weekends, uh, in particular the last three weekends we've had, we have seen an increased number of uh, impaired driving accidents 
uh, some with injury, some without injury. Um, we've had at least seven or eight uh, in those in those last three weekends, which is quite a few for our agency. We just want to remind our residents and those that are out having a good time at night, there's really no excuse for drunk driving any longer. There's way too many rideshare apps. Uh, there's alternative ways to get home rather than driving a vehicle. Um, in the end, there's always a victim to the to the an accident, and uh, unfortunately, we just the, the increase has been over the last three weeks has really been unacceptable. Um, additionally, we had an incident last week wow, that brought a large police present around the school uh, farm, the Bauer School Farm. Uh, we responded that evening on reports of possible gunfire in the field in that area. Uh, that turned out not to be the case. We were able to determine uh, the, the cause of that. There was no threat to the community. Uh, however, there was a large police present both uh, in and around I-75 and the Square Lake Adams, Square Lake Squirrel area. So if there was any questions or concerns about that. There was no active community threat. We were able to uh, quickly, uh, with the help of our community partners, determine what that was, um, and we're able to uh, silence the problem for the evening. Um, we also want to remind our residents of our 9 p.m. routine. Uh, that is a kind of a national program. Uh, I've talked many times, uh, just about every podcast, about our larceny from autos, our stolen autos, which continued again last weekend. Uh, I think we had three or four stolen autos last weekend. But we want to remind our residents to set that kind of the 9 p.m. routine reminder, which is remove any valuable items from your vehicles, especially firearms uh, and, and personal information, such as computers. Um, we want you to lock your vehicle doors. It's really easy. Most, almost all vehicles have key fobs nowadays. You can do that right from the, the comfort of your own house. Uh, close your garage door. Uh, some of the vehicles that have been stolen and the property stolen have been from cars that uh, were left in the garage with their key fobs in the vehicles, thinking they were safe. Uh, close and lock all your exterior doors to your home. Uh, and, and if you have security lights that you, you choose to leave on at night, that's great. Uh, and then turn on any exterior lights that you may have. Those are always reminders. We'll keep reminding it because the property crime is our number one uh, issue going on right now. We have had a lot of requests uh, for subdivisions and uh, the speeding and driving behaviors in the subdivisions. We're doing our best to get cars into those neighborhoods. We did recently purchase what we call two traffic trailers. Uh, we have a list of neighborhoods that those need to go into that we'll set up for a few days at a time so we can track uh, some of the information and, and speeds in neighborhoods. Uh, one thing I want to remind our residents is a lot of times these uh, Complaints are actually residents who live in the neighborhood or new drivers in the neighborhood who uh, don't recognize how fast they're going. So we just want to remind our residents to please be safe, uh, make good decisions when you're on the roadways, and if you need anything from the police department, please do not hesitate to give us a call. Thank you, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.